Hello, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the podcast that travels back in time to explore the historical context of the Bible. I am Dave Roos. I'm a journalist and one of your hosts, and I am here with Helen Bond, a professor of Christian origins and the head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Helen, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Dave. And as always, I'm really excited for the topic of this week's podcast. I know, me too. I um, I, I do have a a little anecdote to share. So, again, we went to Israel <laughs> as a family. We had a great time. We went to all these amazing historical and important religious sites. And, you know, we had the whole family there. And my, my 12-year-old is like a, he's a super smart kid and he's always very on top of things. And I assumed he was paying attention as we discussed all these different places. And I think it was like day eight out of like the 10 days. And we're in Jerusalem or somewhere. And he turns to me, he's like, wait, so Jesus was Jewish? And I'm like, dude, where have you been? Where have you been like for the other 12 years of your life? And where have you been for the first eight days of this story? But um, that is the topic of, of today's podcast or the, the Jewishness of, of Jesus and his, and his world. And we have a terrific guest to, to speak with us about this. We have Amy Jill Levine. She is the University Professor Emerita of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. And now she is also the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. That's a lot to say, but she is a, a terrific expert on uh, Judaism and its roots um, in early Christianity. And hello, uh, AJ, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. I'm happy to be with you. I am distressed, however, whatever Christian education your children are getting, because uh, apparently if they are getting some, it's not as good as it should I be. Know. I know. Th that's why I think it was just a lapse. I think he was jet lagged or something. He he should know that. That was that was disappointing. But um, <laughs> we uh, I, I hope our, our listeners were paying attention when I, when I was saying uh, AJ's titles, so in both of them, it says a professor of New Testament and Jewish studies. And maybe that sounds odd to you, New Testament and Jewish studies. But AJ, you've made, you know, a career out of looking at the, at the New Testament from a Jewish perspective as like a, a, a Jewish historical document. Um, so maybe kind of give our listeners a little background. Why do you think that it's so important for both, you know, Christians and Jews to understand the Jewishness of of Jesus and the world that he uh, that he lived. Well, just basically because if you get first century Jewish practice and belief wrong, you're going to get Jesus mm. wrong. You'll also get Paul wrong, and you'll misread most of the New Testament. Uh, and when that happens, typically, uh, whatever that background context is, whatever that Jewish environment is, becomes uh, for Christians. The negative foil over against which Jesus invents things like healthcare, women's rights, and social justice, hmm. um, and and this is unhelpful for everyone. Okay, well let, let's let's travel back then. Like I said, we have this amazing time machine that allows us to go back to the first century. So, what is it? What what's important to understand about Judaism in the first century that that maybe. Like you said, we we kind of get this this view through the New Testament sometimes that it is one way or it's in opposition to Christianity or whatever that means. So what's important to understand about this time period of, of Judaism? 
Yeah, well, I think the major problem is not the view that one gets from the New Testament. The major problem is what one gets from uh, uh, church thought over the past 2,000 years, which filters the New Testament through a particular lens, which is ignorant of and frequently hostile to Judaism. So what's important to know? Um, if Jesus has women patrons, that's nothing new. So did the Pharisees. So did, so did other people at the time. You know, it, it's, it strikes me as highly unlikely that the only people visiting John the Baptist were men, um, especially since Jesus suggests that prostitutes were following him as well. Um, we get the idea from Christian teaching and preaching that first century Judaism was horribly legalistic uh, with the Pharisees having some sort of uh, clamp down on everybody and making things totally impossible. And then Jesus comes along and basically says, you know, don't worry, be happy, love God, love your neighbor, and everything will take care of itself. Uh, when, in fact, it's Jesus who tends to make the law more rigorous uh, or more, in fact, legalistic, right? The law says don't murder. Jesus says don't be angry. That's harder. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't think about it. That's harder. Right? Um, first century Judaism did not restrict forgiveness or grace or access to God to the temple. Um, and then Jesus somehow invents egalitarianism. I mean, everybody had access to God because God is everywhere. Mm. And you could pray anywhere and, you know, you could atone and be forgiven. And nothing said you had to go to Jerusalem and do something ritualistic in order to get that. Uh, because Jews understood what grace was. And Jews living outside of the city of Jerusalem understood what it was like to be in contact with God and to pray to God without having to do it through the temple. Nor was the temple this horrible institution that Jesus basically comes to take down. Because if it were, then it makes no sense for Paul to talk about uh, service, latreia in Greek. The Hebrew would be avodah, which means temple service, and say that's a great thing. It's one of the irrevocable gifts that God gave to the Jews. And it makes no sense that Jesus' followers continue to worship in the temple, as we say in the book of Acts. Mm. So if we just start doing some basic history, we can get a sense of where Jesus fits in, uh, where he's anomalous, um, or at least distinct, um, and realize that people are following him, not because there's a problem with their own Jewish context, mm. uh, but because he's, in effect, helping them prepare for what he thought was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Wow, terrific. Well, so yeah, maybe help us paint a picture of what you know first century Judaism looked like on the ground if if like you said we kind of think about or we we equate Judaism of this time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and things like that what what was the kind of the daily life of a you know Galilean peasant like like Jesus like Jesus was well I don't think Jesus was a peasant so we have oh, to fix okay. that one uh, you know, because when we think peasant, we think in you know, middle ages and feudalism and attachment to the land and uh, heavy duty agricultural work. Uh, Jesus is an artisan, mm. at least as far as we know from Mark. Now here I have to default to Helen because <laughs> she knows more about Mark than anybody. Um, but Jesus is an artisan. He is not a peasant. He is hardly restricted to a particular plot of land. I mean, he's got freedom of travel. Um, uh, I it, it Generally, cross-culturally, uh, people who can meet both uh, peasants or the poor, whatever that means, because uh, that has to be distinguished culture by culture, but also deal with people who are rich. Artisans are in the best place to do mm. that uh, because they would, it, artisans have to work with richer people because that's where you get your contracts and frequently with poor people because th those are the folks you hire on a temporary basis to do your labor for you. So no, he's not a peasant. Uh, what was life like on the ground? We actually know a fair amount about that. Thank you, archaeology. 
I should note, I do not do archaeology. The very idea of getting up at four o'clock in the morning, being on your knees in the dirt, I would break a nail. I mean, I, I don't want to do archaeology, but I'm very, very happy for people who do. What do we know? Uh, we know that in Galilee, uh, people are concerned about issues of ritual purity. And we know that because there are, um, in fact, countless numbers of ritual baths, mikvaot. Uh, there are chalk stone vessels, uh, which do not convey impurity, um, as opposed to, say, clay crockery. Um, uh, the coinage does not have human images on it. I mean, Herod Antipas knew enough not to put human images on his coins. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, Greek graffiti um, or Greek presence in Lower Galilee. Um, so you can get a sense of how things are functioning. Uh, the smaller towns in Lower Galilee, like places like Capernaum, you know, they're actually doing pretty well. Um, now, here it's an issue of archaeology just gives us data, and then what we have to do is try to interpret it. So we have some people saying, oh, uh, because of heavy-duty urbanization sponsored by Herod Antipas, who's, who builds two big cities, big, big is a comparable term. Um, Sepphoris and Tiberias, that that's, you know, sucking resources out of out of the uh, the agriculture and it's impoverishing people. But in fact, it may be providing uh, more business opportunities. It may be helping the income generally go up rather than down uh, because whereas taxes would pay for some of that stuff. So would uh, so would donations. So would ergotism and so on. So are people starving? No, if they were, it makes no sense for Jesus to tell his buddies, hey, you know, go pop yourself off in whatever house is going to greet you. Um, because if, if I'm a mom of, of 10 or 12 and I've got no food, the last thing I need is an able-bodied fisherman who's given up his day job to go proclaim the gospel saying, gee, I'm going to eat at your table too. Um, so it looks like things are going pretty well in Galilee, which is in part what allows this mission to get up off the ground and, and get some development. Yeah, I, I I agree completely with you there, AJ. I mean, the, the oh, whole good. thing. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> the whole thing, you know, in, G, in, in, in Mark about where Jesus is telling people, you know, give up things, deny yourself, give up um, your, your homes and your family. It, it makes no sense unless they've actually got something to give up. If these are people yeah. on the breadline, there's that you know they they they've got nothing. So and 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 Galilee was was very fertile. I mean, a couple of of crops, um, you know, a couple of crop rotations every every year. So I think that all makes a lot of sense. And I'm also with you on the archaeological excavation. I did one 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 stint at archaeology, getting up at four o'clock. I thought I was going to die. It was it yeah. was August as well. It was oh, it was just the pits. I mean, interesting and I have huge uh, respect for people who do it, but I would definitely rather sit in my armchair and read the reports from an archaeological exactly. excavation. But I wanted to ask you um, a little bit more about the whole purity thing, because I mean, yeah. the Gospels say hardly anything about purity. And I think, you know, as you say, it's the people who interpret the New Testament. It's, it's, it's church ministers who say, oh, well, Jesus was against purity. But I think... Um, I mean, there's another way of looking at that, and that's just that it was assumed. And, and what's your what's your view on that? Was did Jesus sit light at all to any of the purity regulations? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So this this purity thing really comes into biblical studies, as far as I can tell, uh, with the work of a, a now deceased biblical scholar named Marcus Borg. 
um, mm. with his dissertation on purity and holiness. Mm. Um, and because of Borg's then affiliation with a group called the Jesus Seminar, which very much popularized New Testament studies and good for that, because mm. it took it out of the ivory tower, the arcane thing is, oh, you know, you can do this too. Um, purity became the the really bad thing that Jesus got rid of. And then everybody in like, you know, Protestant churches could say, oh, no more ritual purity, which is great because they weren't under it anyway. Yeah, exactly. To the contrary, right? Jesus does not do away with ritual purity. He restores people to states of purity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so he is completely embedded within the purity system. And here, um, what makes things go even more cuckoo um, that's the technical term, uh, is that um, because Christians don't understand purity, they presume that uh, when Jesus touches somebody with leprosy, he's violating or transgressing purity laws. Or when a woman who's got what is probably a uterine or vaginal hemorrhage touches mm-hmm. him, that she's violating purity laws and she should be stoned for doing that. And that's all nonsense. Most people are impure most of the time. Most don't care. And if you have to get yourself back into a state of ritual purity, there are all these ritual baths that you can go to um, to do so. So it's not like Jews are all neurotic or sanctimonious because of purity concerns. Um, for Jesus, dealing with people who are who who are in what look like permanent states of, of impurity, most impurity is temporary, like, you know, um, uh, menstruation or for men, ejaculations. So it's like a temporary thing. So you can regain your purity very easily. Uh, Jesus takes people who are look like in permanent states and then he restores them to ritual purity. If Jesus and if for, in fact, for the guy with whom from whom Jesus cleanses of leprosy, he says, go show yourself to the priest and make the appropriate mm-hmm. offering, which which is what you would do back then if, if you had what got diagnosed as leprosy, probably not Hansen's disease. Um, so I think Jesus is fully obedient to purity. And what we miss here, and this is part of the Roman colonial thing. Um, is that purity practices go up when the Romans come in because purity is a way of reinforcing your own identity over against Rome. It's saying we're Jews, this is what we do, along with things like circumcision and dietary concerns. Um, So ritual purity is a type of uh, Jewish multiculturalism. Mm. Uh, And and am I I right in thinking that ritual purity only really matters if you're wanting to go into the temple? Pretty much. It doesn't matter any other time, does it? Um, people have argued that certain uh, Pharisaic meals mm. required purity. See, but we don't know that. I mean, we, the problem here is the only Pharisee from whom we've got written records is Paul of Tarsus. Um, and that's not a concern for Paul. Um, so part of this is kind of, you know, reading back from rabbinic literature and trying mm. to determine what's going on. Um, but for the meal thing, that's very, very fuzzy. Well, they... um, you know, obviously, uh, at least according to the Gospel of Luke, um, they didn't Pharisees didn't mind hosting Jesus. Not a big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't wash your hands before you before you dine. Well, Jesus and his family did and his, his, his followers did not. Um, what does this mean? It, it means they're not following Pharisaic practice. Now, when we get to the Pharisees, which is an important topic. Um, what the Pharisees were doing is taking some of that purity that you find in the temple and saying, well, listen, if we're all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, thank you, Book of Exodus, um, then some of those privileges that go along with the priesthood should be extended to everybody else. And the priests, before they touch the sacrificial offering, would be in a state of ritual purity, which means they would wash their hands. So the Pharisees are saying, well, we can all do that. That's something everybody can do. And it's easy to do when there's plenty of water in Lower Galilee, right? It's not like they're, they're drought stricken. 
Um, so we could be like priests at our own table. You know, how cool is that? And Jesus says, no, nah, nah, that's an innovation. That's you know, Pharisaic, revolutionary stuff. We're just going to stick with, with the old time religion where priests do that, but we don't. And the weird thing is um, that when you go into churches today, some churches like an Episcopal church, an Anglican church, um, a Roman Catholic church, an Eastern Orthodox church, uh, before the priest uh, handles the elements, if this is communion or Eucharist, there's a ritual washing of hands. Because it's not for cleanliness. In that case, they'd be using Purell, <laughs> you know, um, or soap. Um, it's, it's ritual purity. And Christians don't recognize that. Mm-hmm. Well, I I have a kind of a basic question, but maybe it's not so basic. You know, trying to frame kind of who Jesus was in his Jewish world. Is it is it accurate to call him a rabbi or was that not a term that existed back then? Or how do you kind of place him? Like, was he something other than just a regular guy walking around? Yeah, well, I think it's OK to call him rabbi, although at least according to the Synoptic Gospels, he doesn't like the title. Yeah. You know, don't call anybody rabbi. Uh, in in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene and it, at the resurrection scene goes Rabuni, which John helpfully translates as my teacher. Um, so it just means it means sort of it comes from Hebrew Rav, which means great one. It's kind of a way of saying you know, my lord um, or sir. Um, uh, the problem is that the definition of the term changes over time, right? So by the time you get up to rabbinic literature, now we've got a whole group of people who are identified with the title rabbi, but they're part of a group. Jesus is on his own here. Um, they have a particular history of, of biblical interpretation, a particular history of how, how they understand uh, halakha Jewish practice. Um, and Jesus is not part of that. So if you think about titles um, that have changed over time, uh, they mean different things. If if you call somebody a doctor in the 12th century, that's not the type of medical practice that you'd want to engage in today. Um, if you call somebody a priest in first century Judaism, that's an inherited title. Um, in fact, in contemporary Judaism, it's an inherited title. If your father's a priest, you're a priest. Um, but then for the churches, priesthood becomes, uh, from the pagan side of things, um, a voluntary thing, actually something you could buy yourself. You could buy yourself a priesthood. Eventually, you get particular training. So the title, the title rabbi is okay as long as you recognize that it has certain historical connotations which change over time. I'd like to ask a little bit more about sort of this idea of forgiveness and grace, you know, again, to go back to the sort of the church interpretations. It's, um, it's, it's something that Jesus brings that, that's very distinctive and, um, and, and, and not at all found there in the background. Or at least, you know, forgiveness is very convoluted and to do with um, sacrifice in the temple. So can you say a little bit more about that? To what extent is forgiveness and grace just part of first century Judaism? Well, I mean, Jews knew what it was like to be without a temple because the first one mm-hmm. got burned down by the Babylonians in 587. And and they don't start reconstructing until about 515 in this kind of you know, crappy looking thing that eventually uh, <laughs> King Herod the Great had, had, had to rebuild. Um, so they understood what it was like to be without a temple and to be without sacrifice. But it's not as if Jews in Babylonian exile went, well, OK, there, there goes our relationship with God to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the second Isaiah, or if you're a fundamentalist, the, the Isaiah who was predicting time of the Babylonian exile, um, you could see all sorts of sense of forgiveness and of grace. You can see it in the Psalms. Um, if John the Baptist is proclaiming a baptism for repentance, um, that means that people understand what repentance is, right? It's not like, oh, and let me define this term mm-hmm. for you. 
um, the the baptism does not make people forgiven. Um, the baptism is a a public testimony that they have repented. It's kind of like a, it, what Americans would call an altar call, right? So you come up in front of the church and you dedicate your life to the Christ or in Nashville, you rededicate your life to the Christ. <laughs> um, and then everybody knows that you've done it. So it puts everybody else on alert. Yeah, um, you're now responsible for this person. And if this person backslides, you know, you have to do something to prevent hypocrisy or backsliding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, forgiveness is available. Of course, grace is for, for available. And if people think it's somehow restricted to the temple, that's theologically bizarre because it's suggesting that God can only operate within a particular geographical location. And that would be completely contrary to the idea of who God is, uh, both for Christians and for Jews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's really it's really interesting how how later, particularly Christian um, interpreters, have made this really stark distinction between, you know, what Jesus brings, all these positive things, and then of course they've they've darkened the the, the context to to highlight those things, I suppose, but um, but with 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 bad effects. I think part of it is the result of how church history worked itself out. So what happened is as churches began to develop. Um, is that forgiveness got associated with confession and got associated with mm. the priest, so the priest had to proclaim you forgiven. It was like the, this, these intermediaries who, who turned out to be the priests. Um, and then when Martin Luther got going, um, what he did is map onto his his view of medieval Catholicism, uh, first century Judaism. So that, that gives you this idea of um, forgiveness is somehow restricted to, to a type of clericalism or a type of geographical specificity. And then Luther said, hey, look, it's open. What, what a very Jewish idea. Um, but God forbid <laughs> Luther would have acknowledged that. <laughs> well, the, along with this idea of forgiveness and grace being, you know, exclusively Christian concepts, um, how about this idea of the the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of, of God, this this idea of the kingdom of heaven that, that you know, God will be intervening in the world and, and they'll, they'll be finally, you know, things will be working out for the people. Is that... Was that a concept that was also very much within Judaism of the first century? Yeah, where, do you, where do you think you got it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, Jews don't talk very much about the Malchut Shemaim, the kingdom of heaven. Jews typically use a uh, a temporal rather than a, a geographical. Like a kingdom is, has a ge- geographical sense to it. So you can you know have to have to have a kingdom. You have to have a king. You have a place. Um, Jews will talk about the Olam Haba, the world to come. But this idea that there's a this world, Olam Hazeh, and a world to come, Olam Haba, well, I mean, you've already got that in the prophets. I mean, so when Isaiah talks about, you know, the lion lying down with the lamb and the little child will lead them, and, you know, and the lamb will not be nervous, um, that's already encoded in the system. Um, The Maccabean martyrs in 2 Maccabees talk about, well, they say to the the king Antiochus, you know, you can rip out our tongue, but in the resurrection, we'll get it back and we'll use it to condemn you. So they all knew that the way the world was working was not quite the way God Mm -hmm. wanted. It certainly wasn't the way they wanted it either. Um, And that something new should be breaking in in order for this divine justice to come about. Um, so for what John the Baptist seems to be doing, uh, at least according to the Gospels, less so for Josephus, um, or what Jesus seems to be doing, that makes sense within a first century Jewish environment. Um, Josephus talks about other groups he calls them signs prophets, but I mean, he, he, he does acknowledge that there, there is prophecy out there. 
Um, and there are other folks who were saying, yeah, this 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 time of, of God's kingdom breaking in, it's coming. And you know what? Over the past 2000 years, it's not like we, we've been lacking people on both Jewish and Christian sides making similar claims. I live in Nashville and pretty much every other year there's a big sign saying, you know, kingdom of God, Jesus returning, you know, and then you give a date. <laughs> and then when the date passes, they take the sign down and, and paint <laughs> over and you know, it comes back up the next year. So he's giving people hope in that mm. sense. Well, you you mentioned Isaiah. Um, is there something about this text that, that did, it, did it have a special resonance in the first century? Obviously, it's something that's quoted, you know, in the New Testament a lot. Um, yeah, can you just do we, what do we know about how that, that text was received or what it was like in, in back in the first century? Well, I mean, you've got over 50 chapters. It's a big book. Um, so there, there's a lot that, that could be looked at. Um, uh, there are other prophets that, that may actually have a, a stronger role depending upon the Jew that you ask. Now, remember, there's no head Jew to determine what all Jews are going to do, right? Jews, Jews are an ethnic group. Um, you can convert in. It's sort of like saying if I wanted to become a citizen of Canada, I could petition to become a Canadian citizen. Right? Um, so you can convert into Judaism, but they're basically an ethnic group, which means you can disagree for whatever because they can't throw you out. You can't get thrown out of an ethnic group. right? Um, if you're a religion, you can get thrown out. right? You can be excommunicated. If you're an ethnic group, it's really hard. So Jews are going to disagree. And that's OK, because at the end of the day, the one thing they know is they're Jews and they're not Romans or they're Jews and they're not um uh, Assyrians or Egyptians or whatever, right? So they have their own nation thing. Um, it, it, for the Dead Sea Scrolls, the prophets uh, Nahum and Habakkuk are particularly important uh, from this type of literature called Pesher, interpreta- interpretive literature, where they suggest, in fact, that even Habakkuk and Nahum didn't know the full extent of, of what they were saying, but only through the wisdom of the teacher of righteousness, the founder of the Qumran community, um, could could the true meaning of this prophet come to the fore? So, of course, Jews could they could look back at, at what they have in Pentateuchal material or historical material. They don't have a set canon. It's not like you could say, oh, here's the Tanakh or here's mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Let's open it up. Um, so Isaiah is out there. And what the followers of Jesus were doing, which is what other Jews were doing, is saying, no, we have this scripture. We we have a sense that it's somehow given by God to us. And now what do we do? We go back into that text to find to find ourselves. How are, how does this text inform us about who we are and how we're living? So for the followers of Jesus, the question became, how does this text tell us about Jesus? And once you put on your Christian lenses, you could look at that text and boy, Jesus shows up on every page. Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. It must be part of the Trinity. Oh, it's God talking in the plural. That must be part of the Trinity. Oh, here's a reference to a suffering servant or to a branch. It must refer to Jesus. <laughs> of course. So it's it's a perfectly normal way of people reading. Um, rabbinic Judaism goes back and says, oh, here's the history of Israel, but that's talking about us. Here's Jacob. That's talking about us. Here's King David. That's talking about a Messiah to be and so on. That's what we do. That's what Christians and Jews do today. You go back and you look at your text and you try to figure out um, what is the message that this text has to me in my own particular context today. And that's the whole the whole thing about scripture, isn't it? That you can approach it with almost any question and and you're going to find some kind of answer there that that, that resonates in your own situation. Right. And some, right, if, if you take that answer out of complete historical context, and it's totally solipsistic, isn't it? What is this? Te- here's what the text means to me, you know, exactly. which is lovely. Um, what Judaism and Christianity then suggest is you might want to say, well, what else does it, what does it mean to your community? 
because it's only it's if it's only personal to you, um, that's mm-hmm. really not quite the best way of reading, right? So mm-hmm. you have the community to help you, and you have his, history to help you sometimes from going off the deep end. Mm-hmm. And in the gospel tradition, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of passages where Jesus is engaged in quite fierce controversy with with other religious leaders of his day, whether they're scribes, Pharisees, chief priests. To what extent do you think that that is a historical memory of the way Jesus's ministry was? That you know there, there was this heated engagement, and to what extent do you think that's been uh, over-egged later on as it's been written up in the New Testament and and as Christians have experienced their own um, their own history? Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to go back and rephrase your question, um, because I'm not sure the term religious leader is particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, today, when we think about religious leaders, I think about seminary, seminary trained individuals who have a particular authority, who are hired or appointed to congregations. Um, and that's not quite the way these folks are functioning back then. So yeah. the chief priests are not religious leaders in this because they're not leading a religion, right? Mm-hmm. They're not telling people what to believe. They're not telling people how to practice, except when you go to the temple. And even then, um, as Josephus tells us, the ladies say to the priests every once in a while, you know, you can't do it this way. Um, there, there's a lovely story from before the time of Jesus about people pelting the high priest with etrogs during the festival of Sukkot because they weren't they didn't like the way the priest was doing the ritual, which I think is just a great idea. Um, so <laughs> it, if we think about the high priest and, and the, the priestly contingent in Jerusalem, um, they run the temple, but they do not run the religion. Yeah, yeah. They didn't even talk about religion, um, which is a, a, a somewhat complicated term. And the Pharisees are, you know, they're out there among the people. Josephus says they live the simple life. Josephus doesn't like them because Josephus is a priest and he thinks people ought to be listening to the priests. Um, and to use the British term, the Pharisees have somewhat upjumped. You know, they've gotten ahead of their station and how dare they um, because they don't have the, the ancestral requirement of priesthood. Um, are they religious leaders? They're, they're setting guides for how you how one might practice but I'm not sure the term religious leader is, is terribly helpful here. Um, they're, they're popular teachers. Um, did Jesus debate with them? Sure. Yeah, that one surprised me, at least the idea of one Jew yelling at another Jew. Nothing new there. I should come to my synagogue at a board meeting. Um, the, um, I'd love uh, to. <laughs> great fun. Um, you know, so people yell at each other and then you have a glass of schnapps afterwards and everybody's fine. Um, uh did Jesus debate? Sure. Did he debate with passion? Absolutely. Because you're debating stuff that really matters. Like mm-hmm. how best do you do what God wants you to do? How best do you understand the tradition? How best do you understand? Here's what Deuteronomy is saying, or here's what Leviticus is saying. Um, uh, how best do you live your life? So of course, Jesus and other Jews would debate. God, heaven no, Jesus and the disciples debate. Um, here's Mark and Jesus is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, calling somebody Satan is not a compliment. Um, you know, at the end of the parables discourse, do you guys not understand, you know, you weak faith people? Oh yeah, but that's the way people talk back then. And then I think what happened is you have a basis of argumentation. And then as the gospels are being put together, um, that base is ratcheted up, mm-hmm. um, so could Jesus have called people Pharisees names? It's certainly possible. Uh, does that mean he's writing them out of the tradition? No. 
because if he's continuing to debate with them, then that's still part of the tradition. You write somebody out of the tradition by basically saying, we're not going to deal with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul is a Pharisee. Paul never ceases to be a Pharisee when he joins this, this new movement. And he doesn't become a Christian because he doesn't know the word. Um, so he's a Pharisee who happens to believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Uh, the book of Acts tells us that other Pharisees joined the movement. You can see that, for example, at the beginning of Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Um, so is there heightened rhetoric? Sure. Um, does it get heightened more? Yes. And the problem comes in when this heightened rhetoric gets contextualized into the gospel narratives, and then the gospel narratives become read by Gentiles. And suddenly it's Jesus arguing over against fellow Jews or, rather than arguing with fellow right. Jews. hmm and that's that's the problem of cultural shifts and the the effect of what eventually becomes called the New Testament. Well, that's that's a question I had. So, gospels obviously written, you know, decades after Jesus is gone. Do you think, you know, were, were they written maybe for this Gentile audience, or were they still primarily written for a Jewish audience, or were each of them sort of did they have different audiences? No, I think Gospels are written for anybody who's going to read them. Um, this this old line that I learned in graduate school, of course, I was in graduate school when Noah was still on the ark. So this is very, very long time ago. Um, that Matthew was a Jew writing to this narrow, exclusivistic, quote unquote, Jewish Christian community to tell them that Gentiles were really okay. Um, and all that anti-Gentile stuff in Matthew, well, Jesus never would have said it because, of course, he's Jesus and he invented universalism. And Matthew never would have said it because Matthew was a follower of Jesus. So anything that looked, you know, it, un- anything that made Christians uncomfortable had to come from this Jewish mm. source. And I think that's nonsense. Um, in Matthew, we know, is the most po- popular gospel in the Gentile world in the second century uh, by, you know, who's quoting Matthew? And then you start looking at manuscript fragments. Um, so I don't think Matthew is writing just to Jews. I don't think Matthew has Jews in mind, particularly. I think Matthew is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Um, but if some Jew wants to pick it up and read it, Matthew would be delighted. Um, I don't see any reason to restrict Mark's audience to Jews. Mark has to explain Jewish customs, Mm. um, which he sort of gets wrong. Mm. Um, so I don't think Mark is writing to Jews and I don't think Mark is a Jew either. Although he might be, how would we know? How do we know he's a he mm. as opposed to a she or a they? Um, so we don't know this stuff. But I think gospel, I mean, why do you write? You write so people will read what you write. I mean, like, I'm not writing to a particular target audience. I'm writing to anybody who's going to read my stuff. <laughs> Lots of people, I'm sure. And just, just um, we, we, I know we're coming to the end of um, our, our time with you, but uh, what would you say? I mean, how, what, what do you say to your students, Jewish students in particular, who are reading the New Testament um, or, or you know, people, people in a synagogue who want to read the New Testament? Yeah. Do, you, do you give them health warnings or what, what, what do you say? How do you go about it? The New Testament is part of Jewish history because the people who are being discussed and in some cases, the people who are writing like Paul are Jews. This is part of Jewish history. Um, it's also part of Jewish history because the New Testament, as, as it has been interpreted over time, like uh, you Jews are children of the mm-hmm. devil in the Gospel of John, or let his blood be on us and on our children from Matthew. I mean, those verses have been used to, to not only just to marginalize and to oppress, but also to kill Jews. So Jews need to be aware of this. But what I also tell my students or people in synagogues who are interested in, in learning something about what their Christian neighbors think is important is that um, Christianity is not the New Testament any more than Judaism is is the Torah. 
um, Christianity is the interpretation of the text. And then to give my my Jewish students and, and people in Jewish congregations knowledge of, well, here's what Christians have said over time regarding this material. From the very, very hateful stuff that you can find in, um, in the Church Fathers uh, and in medieval commentators, uh, to comments from Vatican II, uh, Nostra Aetate Number 4, um, or from the Anglican Church, God's Unfailing Word, which came out a couple of years ago from uh, Methodist churches and, and Presbyterian churches and so on, saying that uh, churches, Lutheran churches in particular, that churches uh, uh, repent of this horrible anti-Jewish teaching and recognize that Jews are still under covenant with God. And they have to find some ways of reading this text, which are not anti-Jewish, in the same way that when we Jews, for example, read the story of Exodus, which is very anti-Egyptian, we also tell this Midrash, this, this rabbinic story that says when the Egyptian soldiers are drowning in the sea and the angels are singing praises, God says to the angels, my children are dying and you're singing praises to recognize that those Egyptian soldiers are also God's children and that everybody is in the image and likeness of God. So to see um, Christians, whether individually or denominationally or in a particular church, wrestling with some of that, that anti-Jewish material, Jews need to know that as well. Mm-hmm. Terrific. AJ, we could talk to you for hours. We don't want to take that much of your time, but thank you so much for joining us today. And and if, if you guys listening are, are not familiar with her books, she has some truly excellent books on these topics. Um, I think The Misunderstood Jew was maybe the, really the breakout one. And then you have The Bible with and without Jesus, um, subtitled How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories. Um, uh, sorry, read the same stories differently. Sorry. Um, <laughs> very accessible, well-written um, books, not you know heavily academic, but anyone who is curious and interested in, in the history of, of of this of this really fascinating time when you know Judaism had this this movement within Judaism that has since become something else and it's important for both Jews and Christians to kind of understand this this history and these texts. So AJ, thank you again for joining us. You're very very welcome. I would suggest that perhaps you pick up some of my books and give them to your child's religious educators. Oh boy, we're kind of, I know I feel bad now. Now I'm well. dragging him through the mud, but he's he's, he's a very smart <laughs> kid. I think he was just half asleep for the first couple years of his life. But anyway, it's not his problem. It's the problem of the teachers. But now, well, no, but see, now it's the parents, and now I'm making I'm making myself look terrible too. But all right, it's okay. <laughs> forgiveness. I'm going to for, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive myself, and we'll start again. Right, and I'm Jewish. I can inculcate guilt. I know oh, how to do that. Oh, that was good. That was nice. Thank you to our listeners, and uh, we'll see you next time on Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye.